The Dinner for Geeks podcast. Four geeks eating dinner. Opinion. Batman Begins was interminable. Screw all of you people in your backstory. Okay? <laughs> no, it's no Grease 2, I'll tell you that. I don't think she was ever hotter than in Grease 2, and I hate to say that because I'm not a musical man. Maxwell Caulfield, also never hotter than in Grease 2. <laughs> Question. Why in God's name did Kenner decide to go, you know, we just don't like the head on that solo figure. Let's redo it and make it look ridiculous. Who is Navin Jones? Story. <laughs> you don't have a gun. And you don't think you're... you're I don't think I'm responsible enough. No. Yeah, yeah. And I do have a gun, but I started thinking, I don't think I'm responsible enough. <laughs> well, it's a small gun, so I called it my holdout blaster. <laughs> If you're calling it a blaster, you're probably not responsible. <laughs> and the one time I was... calling it pop-pop And the one time I thought of buying another gun, it was a broom-handled Mauser. Oh, no. So you're <laughs> exactly. Buying Solo's gun? Exactly. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I talked to my uncle, who was a gun guy. I told him what I wanted to get, and he goes, why would you why? want that? <laughs> and I told him, he goes, maybe you don't need a gun. <laughs> and dinner. We got seasonal food. For yeah. Uh, you got any pickles back there? No. Dinner4geeks.libsyn.com or in the Apple iTunes store under Dinner for Geeks. It's like an Easter egg you don't have to look real hard to find. And so are we ready to roll? I'm ready. Mm-hmm. Just polishing off this cough drop. All right, well... I guess I'll bring us in. Back to the bin. Hey everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins, episode number... What episode is this, Bill? Is this 105? This is not 105! This is is episode number 106. And as you could hear, I am joined by my buddy Bill Robinson. Hello. And we are again joined by Chris Honeywell, who's becoming a semi-regular now. What's up with that? (laughs) I don't know, it almost seems... uh... Just uh, very out of the ordinary for you to be so <laughs> mainstream as to be doing back to the bins. But when we Don't worry, I brought, I brought something non-mainstream with me this time. Yes, it, it is very serendipitous that he's with us tonight. And as a very special guest today, we have Mr. Andy Leyland of Hey Kids Comics. Hello. How you doing? Uh, I'm, I'm all right. How are you all? I know I'm eh. pretty good. It's you know it's late at night here. How about by you? It's early in the morning, and reading Chris's comic is just making me have fever dreams. <laughs> what was really funny is I was I was up kicking around about exactly 24 hours ago last night, yeah. and Andy popped up, and, and Andy was like, "Hey, Chris, are you here for Back to the Bins? I'm ready to go." <laughs> yeah, being able early, to actually man. read English does come in useful. I'm just picturing you just got up and you're just climbing mm. on the computer with bedhead and like cup of coffee or sorry tea. Well, are we not allowed tea. to drink coffee? Are we not? <laughs> no, I I heard that. Yeah, I heard it doesn't stain your teeth enough. <laughs> Ooh, 
Oh, yeah. Just uh, from last uh, Comics Monthly Monday, apparently there's a battle being set up between you and Scott. Sure, why not? Well, not, not you, Chris. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did it, it's not, I'm not aware of this. Battle? What battle? Oh, there was the uh, the crossover uh, crossover Freaky Five, and somebody suggested uh, Andy against Scott. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was when we got into we, we basically said uh, that Scott didn't stand a chance because uh, Andy would just disarm him with his English charm. And his bad teeth. Yeah. Because if that we're going to reinforce the stereotype, then we'll let's carry on doing that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not the one who's sitting here talking about drinking tea at four in the morning. I'm, I'm not drinking I tea. I started that, too. I'm starting all this stuff. <laughs> You're no, just a little troublemaker, aren't you? I try. <laughs> so we're going to... Bypass this email podcast today. needs an enema. <laughs> That's why we brought you in there, Chris. You're gonna clean us right out. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're gonna we're gonna bypass email tonight. And... <laughs> okay, and ju- jump into things. And today, Bill, you have our Marvel. Yes. <clears throat> what you got for us? Well, this is in true Scott Gardner fashion. This is a random book pulled from my collection, although it was the fourth book I pulled from my collection because I couldn't seem to find a Marvel book. But I finally came across Mephisto versus the Fantastic Four number one from April 1987. And it is a cover price of $1.50. Ah, the good old days. I remember those. Covers by John Bolton. Uh, The writer is Al Milgram. Penciler is John Buscema. Uh, inks is Bob Wycheck. Letters, Rick Parker. George Russos on color. Ralph Macchio as editor. And, <clears throat> and editor-in-chief is Jim Shooter. And, and of course, once again, I uh, flub everything up as I can't get to the book. Ah, there we go. But, hey, it wouldn't be a show if I didn't screw something up. Okay, so we open a book with our, t- with our title. Give the devil his due, and um, we have a, a uh, we have the Fantastic Five. That's right. I said there are five members, and no, this is not a Cardassian interrogation. There are five members, not four. So please keep your pants on. And if you don't get that reference, go watch the Next Generation episode, Chain of Command Part Two, which eventually the two true freaks will get to in their other show. One Back of the to the best story. Episodes of that show. There are five members. Oh. <clears throat> All right, back to the story. Nearby Franklin, um, uh, well, first the uh, they're looking down down a shaft that uh, has uh, inexplicably appeared in the sub basement of the new Baxter building, and uh, Reed is starting to stretch down into it to try to see where this where this goes. It was it on the blueprints. He, he's trying to find out what's going on. Um, nearby Franklin uh, seems to sense something is wrong <clears throat> as his loved ones investigate. Uh, Reed barely has time to pull himself out before a column of flame erupts from the depths of the shaft. And the flame is so strong that it even snuffs out Johnny's flame. Huh? Okay. <laughs> we'll go with that. And the shaft is melted shut b- by the um, b- by the flame. And the FF decide, well, no harm, no foul. And they head back upstairs. On the way up, Franklin runs into them and tells them about the bad man. 
Reed assures Franklin that even though he sometimes has precog dreams, that everything will be all right. Later, Reed and company decide that since they survived this quote-unquote attack, they should be okay, and they'll question Franklin more about it in the morning. The following morning, all seems well, as Franklin wakes to his mother making breakfast, Johnny and Alicia heading out to a tennis match, which I personally think is a bit cruel to Alicia, and creepy Uncle Ben watching him brush his teeth. Upon leaving the bathroom, Ben and Franklin find Johnny and Alicia making out. They taunt Ben until he becomes enraged and attacks Johnny, eventually knocking a hole in the wall to the outside and killing the unsuspecting citizens below. Well, hopefully uh, they've got safeguards in place for that or something. Uh, The fight escalates until the torch flames on and then, for some reason, dissolves into Ben's hands. Ben believes he has killed Johnny. Alicia tells Ben that he is finally the monster that they all believed him to be. He is evil, and all evil men go to foosh. What the hell is a foosh? Meanwhile, in Queens, Johnny and Alicia are at the tennis match. Johnny and Alicia are at the tennis match? Hmm, weren't they just at the Baxter building? Strange. Johnny gives Alicia a a play-by-play of the match. (sighs) How exciting. (laughs) Mr. McInroarka is tired of Johnny's prattling on. He's one of the, uh, the tennis players. And pisses Johnny off. One flame on later, and the crowd around Johnny is toast. Literally. Mac and Rourke, or maybe he's uh, Mr. Rourke's son from Fantasy Island, I don't know, tells the Torch he is a sinner, and all sinners go to foosh. Uh, Johnny vanishes, and Alicia is suddenly alone and pitied by the onlookers in the crowd as they think that Johnny has abandoned her, the, the poor little blind girl left at the, at the tennis match. Strange things are afoot with the mail delivery back at the Baxter building. Willie Lumpkin is telling Reed about some important mail in a large oversized bag, just as Franklin runs in to tell Reed about his two uncles fighting. Reed blows him off and digs into the mailbag. Unbeknownst to Reed, we've replaced this mailbag with a demonic bag of holding. Let's see what happens, shall we? Whoosh! Wah! And he's gone. Franklin turns to Willie for uh, for help, only to find he has been replaced by Angus Scrim from the Phantasm movies. Now your daddy is paying for his sins, boy. Screaming, the child runs to his mother, only to see her carelessness cause her to burn up in a giant foosh while cooking. Again with the damn fooshes. Poor Franklin. Finally, he jumps in the arms of the waiting She-Hulk, only to have her betray him, too. With a maniacal smile and a wicked one-handed, over, uh, one-handed overhand kid slam, she pitches him down into a deep crevice in the floor. Franklin fell into a burning ring of fire. He went down, 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 and flames went higher. And it burns, 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 the ring of fire, the ring of fire. See, I told you to be singing, Paul. I, yes, you did. <laughs> Reaching the bottom, we see where the FF was whooshed off to. They are in the realm of Mephisto, and Franklin has now joined them. Frank, uh, Mephisto informs the others that Franklin 
is the one he wants for the indignity inflicted upon him by the boy. See Fantastic Four 277 for more information. He wants one of his family to sign away Franklin's soul. The first to challenge him is the thing. Clobbering time is on, but not for long, as this is Mephisto's realm and you play by his rules. He pulls away the outer layer of Ben Grimm, revealing his inner self to be a monster as well. I think he looks more like the Shmoo from Saturday Morning Cartoons on, on NBC or uh, Gleep and Glop from the Herculoids, but you be the judge. Johnny, angered by Mephisto's treatment of Ben, breaks free and breaks into song. But don't worry, Paul, I won't sing this one. You feel free. Sing all you want, my uh, friend. <laughs> breaks into song with that hit from 1983 by Kansas, Fight Fire with Fire. Well, his fire is turned against him, though, as it is used to torment the accursed souls around him, he too has failed. Reed now comes to Franklin's aid, only be given pause by Mephisto's tale of how he was the one who gave Reed his great intellect in a contract signed way back when his roommate Doom tried to summon Mephisto uh, when he was back in college. Now, whether this was true or not, Reed's doubt in himself allows Mephisto to strip him of his intelligence. So only Susan Storm now remains – well, actually, she would be Susan Richards, my bad – stands uh, against Mephisto after a brief struggle between the two. He offers her the choice to remain there in Franklin's place and to restore her – and he will also restore her loved ones as well. Re reluctantly, she agrees, only to find that Mephisto had no real hold on any of them at all. And she, however, is now his – and he, she will remain as such because she chose of her own free will to stay. The others are returned, returned to Earth, vowing to get Susan back. Mrs. Storm is taken away by demons while Mephisto decides what to do with her. Next issue, X-Factor in Sympathy for the Devil. And, and I won't bother singing that one. That's a tough one to sing, a cappella. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Overall, I it, it, like I said earlier when when we were talking, this was uh, I don't think I'd actually read this probably since 1987 was the last time I'd actually taken a look at this, and uh, I, um, and it had been a, it's been a long time since I've seen uh, um, John Buscema's artwork too, um, and it's you know it's I've always liked it. I know some people don't always like the Buscema's artwork with especially the you know the way I think they can really make people look crazy and scary like like with She-Hulk when she's getting when, when uh, she's hugging uh, Franklin and then later on when Sue is uh, pissed off against Mephisto I mean I think it shows some good emotion on the characters uh, what do you guys think on uh, on the art I, or I, any general comments I mean, I, I, I like Buscema's artwork, and I'm giving some of the credit here to the coloring and the inking on it, but mm -hmm. I, I thought it was pretty cool the way they uh, they just kind of set like a real dreary kind of tone to things. And, and uh, you know, I, I just really thought they set the mood. And and like you said, you know, the evil look, they did that a few times with Alicia also, kind of like that, that knowing evil smile. Mm -hmm. Which I I really like the artwork in this book. Uh, did you notice the uh, that you know Willie Lumpkin looks kind of like Stanley? 
And it, it reminds me of when he played Willie in, oh, yeah. uh, in the first movie. Yeah, yeah cause he, he was in the first, um, in the first, was he in the second one too, or just the first one? He was in the second one, but it was, uh, I think That's he was at he Reed and Sue's wedding in the second one. I don't think it was Willie Lumpkin. Right. And it, and he couldn't get in, just like the annual. Yeah, I think that's yeah. exactly it. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like the the look of, on the cover, which I know that's not Buscema, but yeah, that's uh, John Bolton. But I, I really, I just really like the cover. Not only do I like the cover, but I, I got a kick out of the picture at the top corner. Oh yeah, yeah, because that that kind of you know tells what's going to happen later, uh, because you've got the Mephisto looming over the thing. And right towards the end of the book, that's actually a scene in the book because Mephisto has grown to this large size and actually then rips this thing's skin off of him, his outer layer, revealing the milky white center, I guess, the marshmallow filling <laughs> of Ben Grimm. <laughs> I'm not going to touch that. I'm trying to remember if I actually – this this was right at about the time that I stopped – reading fantastic for and i can't remember if i read this when it first came out well this would have you know i mean this was a separate um series and i don't i think they all had different i don't remember if they all had different names like like Mm -hmm. number two is mephisto versus x factor and I don't remember when, or I think the next one goes back to the Fantastic Four, but I could be wrong, and I guess I could Google it, but, you know, well, what's the, the fun in that? No, first one is Fantastic Four, second one is X-Factor, third uh-huh. one is X-Men, and the fourth one is the Avengers. Oh, okay. All right. It was kind of, kind of I, think, I think it was Marvel's way of doing a Mephisto, Mephisto series, but not just have him as the headliner, you know, try and pull in people with the basically who he's fighting in each issue well yeah because nowadays this first issue and i think we've said this on other books before this first issue would be you know two or three issues of like a 12 issue series you know they would take that four issue series they did back in back in the late 80s and make it you know a 12 issue extravaganza well especially with all the different characters that they used you figure they'd make it into you know a huge crossover event Mm -hmm. i like the uh John Mackenroke. I guess it's Mackenroke. Mackin Mackenroke. Well, it's well, maybe Roke and Cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to our resident Englishman to correct us. What do you say, Andy? Um, he's, he's just uh, I presume, you started I presume he's just, <laughs> I just presume he's supposed to be Mackenroke, but well, I didn't yeah. notice the ridiculous <laughs> spelling of it when I was reading it. Yeah, they've got that Q in there because uh, when I was doing my my synopsis, I was going mac and what mac and rook. I kind of yeah. like Chris's mac and cheese. That's why I just yeah, I always change them to that and and go with it. <laughs> but like Johnny's saying, since you can't see Alicia, I'll provide the color commentary. <laughs> I don't see the point of taking Alicia to a tennis match. To be brutally honest with you, that's just cool. and then get a seat where she could get beamed in the head. Yeah, I mean, they've even got front row seats. What for? (laughs) So that Johnny could see it better. They could just be sat in a bar for all she knows, and he could just do a tennis match. Why do I smell liquor if we're in a tennis match? I don't feel the air float across my face. I don't understand. Tennis court, we're allowed to sell beer. 
Oh, okay, Johnny, I'll believe that. Why can't I hear any tennis balls? Uh, they're not tennis balls, love. <laughs> oh, my God, you've gone deaf. You can only hear me. What? <laughs> I'll bang some balls against your chin, and it's just like with her. You'll never know. <laughs> kind of, kind of an, an eclectic group sitting around them at the tennis game, the tennis match also. You, you got the, like, Barbara Bush over there with the big hats. You got some old <laughs> punk rock kind of guys. You got uh, somebody behind them from Men in Black. Yeah, because if there's anything that defines punk rock, it's tennis. <laughs> right. And I was just going to say, it just sounds like your normal crowd at a tennis match, you know. Yeah. Is that Iggy Pop there with the purple hair and the green sunglasses there off to the left? That's who oh, I was talking about. Iggy Pop's yeah. a known tennis fanatic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and you notice how, how they're all pulling away from her like she's a leper? Because <laughs> she's a blindie. Everybody. They're all like distancing for. We're gonna catch something. Move hey. away, Margaret. <laughs> Get away, or you're gonna go blind too. Yeah, exactly. I hope that's not catching. Johnny, Johnny, where are you? What were you shouting about? Oh, poor girl. Her date must have gone to concessions without telling her. Either that, or he ditched her. <laughs> he shouldn't leave a blind girl alone like that. But we will. <laughs> Young people these days, no manners. I'm just looking, like, while we're talking, I'm looking through it again, and the last shot of evil Stan Lee, when you said he was, uh, what is it, the guy from Phantasm he looks like? That's yeah. a great shot. The well, I just... And everything. That just po- popped in my head, because the last word of the of the first sentence is boy, and, you know... Boy! <laughs> but I, I just, the, the way that's that's colored, and the lighting in it and everything, I just love that shot. It's, Where's it's, all that? Sorry, Chris. What was that? It just reminded me. I'm I'm friends with the Phantasm page on Facebook, and when they had the new Pope, or but when they were leading up to a new Pope, they photoshopped Angus Scrim's oh, I face saw that. to the Pope, and they were just like, "This should be the new Pope." And I'm like looking at it. And I'm like, "Okay, who's gonna be the first?" person to put the comment down that says boy and there were like 12 of them immediately within like five seconds <laughs> but oh. jokes are too easy these days yeah but uh i like how they they just wouldn't say hell they kept you know you're going straight to foosh <laughs> whoosh Whoosh. Is that a technical term for hell? Is it? It sounds I guess. so much better. Yeah, because because the because the demon Alicia says, well, because that I did. I guess I skipped that in the synopsis that the that this uh, Johnny and Alicia that were making out in the Baxter Building were actually demons sent by Mephisto to uh, to rile up Ben. And um, you know, she says sooner or later, you know, oh. You're an evil man, and sooner or later they all go straight to whoosh. So are we at the point in fantastic history where the thing's okay with Johnny shagging Alicia? Is that perfectly okay now? Well, yeah, because this was... uh, Okay, well, let's see. Jennifer, the She-Hulk was in the Fantastic Four, and they referenced issue 277. So by then, Ben Grimm had come back from... Obviously, he's come back from the Secret Wars planet. And when he came back, that was when he found out about Leisha and Johnny. But you got to remember also that this Leisha is a Skrull. 
Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, so it, that's why she's evil. It's well no, well that's the demon Alicia. This is I mean the the actual Alicia that wasn't making out with Johnny in front of Ben and when uh, creepy Uncle Ben just sitting in the bathroom watching Franklin brush his teeth in his pajamas. That's just kind of creeping me out. But <laughs> be like, "Hey, Uncle Ben, can I have a little privacy here? You want to just like move along something? Go read your paper, anything?" I like, like page 11, where Sue Storm apparently cooks wearing a Fantastic Four outfit. Yeah, exactly, with the apron in front. Yeah, and it's really, Sue, you just wear that all the time, do you? I've, I've been reading some, some old Avengers issues lately, and, and I get a kick out of that. They show them, like, hanging around the mansion. You know, they'll be sitting on a couch watching TV, but they have their masks Hulk on costume. and costumes and everything. <laughs> it's like, really? That's how, you, that's how you relax? Ready to go at a moment's notice. <laughs> If you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna wear the FF outfit as you cook, you can get an apron that goes with it a little better. She could have got an F on, you know, a big four on the front of the apron. And how could she? She could control. She has invisible force fields. Why didn't she just catch that cooking oil before it hit the stove? Really? Cast stove igniting the oil. Ah, the flames. Oh wait, that's right. I have invisible force shield powers and could have taken care of. Oh, never mind. How old's Franklin in this? Because he seems uh, to keep changing sizes. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does he's seem tiny. to change size a little. Yeah, he's a little baby when She-Hulk picks him up. But earlier yeah. on, he's he's toddling around quite happily. But he looks about four or five. But how old is he now? About 40. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's actually, well, because you had future Franklin that came back. Uh, I love that? comics. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the shot when She Hulk is holding him. Yeah, he looks. You like would he's... think he was no more than two from well, the size of him. There. Yeah, but the She Hulk's pretty big. Oh, oh yeah, but wait a minute. Yeah, that is like real. Her head's huge because she's ready to kind of eat the kid's head. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Franklin. He never had any luck, did he? No. Although he's nestled in between the She Hulk's boobs, though, so I suppose that counts as lucky. Not for long, because then he's whipped down the crevice into hell. Oh, sorry, into foosh. <laughs> That's what I'll start doing around around my kids. I'll I'll just make up words. Foosh, darn it. <laughs> I think uh, Hickman's recent run was the best Franklin and Valeria have ever been written. Yeah, you know, that's that re- you know really let them kind of come into their own and and treated them like characters instead of props. Mm. Yeah, because now it's the whole future foundation thing going on, isn't it? Yeah, and yeah. As, especially Valeria—they made her into like a real, you know, for, for I don't I don't know how old she's supposed to be. I, I'm thinking like around five or six, but they made her into you know a pretty complex character, and then you know that she's smarter than Reed, which I get a kick out of. So, so Andy, on page six, would that um, where? Where uh, Ben punches the wall out and it falls down t- down to the street, would that fall under uh, property damage under the Fantastic Cast's uh, criteria? I think that's property damage and fear of the thing. <laughs> fear of the thing. <laughs> I don't know, yeah, like... if, if if you're down on the floor underneath that, you're dead. <laughs> now, generally, I don't like lazy artwork, but I really like the minimalist approach in the next panel. When they show oh, Franklin yes. running away, he's running. He he looks like well, I was I was gonna say a cartoon character, but you know this is comics. But it looks like 
like in a Hanna Barbera cartoon, like he's you know running in place, you know, with a little. He's getting. He's just. He's hauling butt. With the background just repeating <laughs> behind him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he, he keeps running past the same table and chairs. Same table and yep, chairs. With the, the, with the like kettle drum sound effect for the feet going. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yogi yeah, so, <laughs> hey, boo-boo. That's what he's boo-boo. So, Yogi. <laughs> I guess you can, you're going to get to this on your show in about 30 60 years. 60 years. <laughs> Uh, I, I would imagine at some point, yeah. I, if we make it through Lee and Kirby, I'll be happy. Uh, you can't you can't quit till you get through Burn. <laughs> oh, <laughs> All right, I mean, is that a contract? Is it? That's I'm I'm telling you now. I'm not I'm not letting you. Right. Well, we made you skip from Lee Kirby straight to issue 232. There you well, go. I, I'll send a memo after Demanzo and see what he can do. <laughs> See, you, 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 will, you would be missing out on some gold if you do that, though. Cause... I know, we'd be missing out on all the, the Roy Thomas and George Perez stuff. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's some great Roy Thomas stuff, like when Galactus attacked Coney Island and stuff. <laughs> <That's> the, <laughs> there's just, just some great stuff. And that's, you know, that's the if first time. Galactus is going to attack any place, it's going to be Coney Island. <laughs> Galactus needs a Ferris wheel. Yes. <laughs> So, what did you think about the way Mephisto uh, neutralizes everyone when he peels away the thing? Yeesh. Yeah, that's very cool. Just turns him into... What, what did you say it looks like? Well, there was a character called the Shmoo. It was like a big white gl- ball thing that jumped around. And then on the... The Herculoids had those two things, Gleep and Glop. You know, the things right. that... That went, just jumped around, <laughs> changed shape. Oh, I love the Herculoids. They had some great, you know, they had I- Igu the Ape. And yeah. uh, um, they had that, uh, well, you know what? We're getting way off topic. we got to stay on the topic. <laughs> Isn't that the whole idea of this show? Stay on topic. Stay on topic. All right, Porkins. And, <laughs> hey, that was Gold Leader, dude. It was, that wasn't Porkins? Porkins doesn't say that. Porkin goes, I can hold it. Ah. <laughs> so, and um, so uh, Mephisto really uh, pulled a fast one on Reed, making him think, oh, yeah, I'm the one that gave you your intellect. You don't remember? Oh, yeah, you signed a contract. What? Yeah, Sucker. I guess he wasn't that smart to begin with, then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> He suddenly turned into John Lovitz from Saturday Night Live. You ever see him play play the devil on that? Yes. Yeah. 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 Mephistopheles. That's the ticket. Oh, oh, my wife, Morgan Fairchild. Yeah. Oh, what was the one where he he actually he he played the devil in the People's Court? Remember that one, where he went up against the woman uh, who 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 was a, was a hairdresser. And then at the end, they're like, uh, Mr. Mephistopheles, would you like to say anything to the millions of people at home? And he's like, millions? Millions of people? And then he jumps the, uh, up in the camera. He's going, worship me. <laughs> Bow down before me. I am Mephistopheles. <laughs> now, just just picture a live-action version of this book with John Lovitz in the, in the Mephisto role. <laughs> Best movie ever. Get a Kickstarter <laughs> account started. 
Yeah, John Lovitz isn't doing anything he's, nowadays. So he's, he's doing. He's hanging around with Kevin Smith and those guys. He's he's showing up on that uh, hot in Cleveland on Nick. Really? Yeah, he's been on there a couple of times. On Nick or is it Nick or TV Land? Maybe I think it's TV Land. Yeah. He'll yeah, fill yeah. in for for Kevin Smith on the Hollywood Babylon show with Ralph Garman, and when he does, it's hilarious. He's crude. He is he's <laughs> crude and rude, and he tries extra hard when he goes on a Kevin Smith podcast to be crude and rude. So I highly the the like I can listen to the the ones with with Ralph Garman and Kevin Smith, but when it's Ralph Garman and John Lovitz, it's unbelievably hilarious because he does all those characters but he does r to x-rated versions of them <laughs> but so, I, like I, I agree with what andy was saying i don't know two weeks ago when he when kevin smith came up i enjoy his show but sometimes it almost seems like he's cursing just to show everybody how cool he is instead of for any actual effect no, I think he's just so stoned that he talks like that he just reminds me of those people who just they can't say anything without using the F word as a, as just like I would use um or like or you know. <laughs> Kevin Smith uses it as punctuation. Yeah, yeah, because I know people who talk like that. Yeah, because because he, really he doesn't. Ha- I mean, I know there's lots. Of, I've heard lots of podcasts where people are are doing that, but I yeah, I think he's just that's just how he he talks and. The fact that in the last, like, I think it's like three years, he really just started smoking pot really hasn't helped. <laughs> I find that hard to believe that he's only smoking pot for three years with some of the movies that he's made. Well, it was often, he was never, yeah, I guess he was never a big, a big drug user. It, it, that was Jay, I guess, during most of those times who was the big <laughs> in into stuff like that, but... Yeah, but well, yeah. Think, if you, oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I think so. I think somebody was doing drugs when they drew this last panel, because I'm sorry that pink and green demon just don't look that scary to me. They that reminds kind of, me of the uh, the demons like, from the cartoon of Hercules, the Disney version. Oh yeah. <laughs> I don't remember the, what's the name. Bobcat Goldthwait did the voice for one. <laughs> oh right, right. You're right. And now I'm hearing James Woods as Mephisto. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> right. he, he, if they if they animated this book and they got James Woods to do Mephisto, it would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Ooh, piece of candy. <laughs> <laughs> He's not doing much these days, you know. Back to the a Family Guy podcast. I'm yeah. telling, all these, all these, all these things that we're fantasizing about just. We should just have we should just start up like 500 Kickstarter accounts and see which one you know people pay a million dollars to want to see. <laughs> Somehow I'm thinking none of them. Said, hey man, we got three million dollars on a Kickstarter account, you know, to to pay you to be voice Mephisto. He'll do it. I'm wondering if people will pay a million dollars to just watch me relax on a beach in the Caribbean. I don't know. It's worth a try. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know people wouldn't pay a million dollars for me to podcast, but I'm thinking they might pay it for me to stop. Ooh, I've never thought of that. Aunt, Andy, <laughs> could, I be your, could I be your overpaid American butler? Yeah, sure. 
I'm, oh, I'm not down with all that butler stuff. You can just come and sit and have a few beers with me. Okay. You're, you're overpaid and underdressed American butler. If, if the salary is right, I'll get the, the hat with the bells on it, and I could be your fool. <laughs> no, let's just get enough money. beach and drink. What's wrong with that idea? Yeah, I, th- I could go for that. You could just invite, invite your friends over. And this is an American. <laughs> Typical American. Just call him my American manservant. American right, my we, gentleman's gentleman. We've gone so far astray. Let me <laughs> let me pull us back in. Yeah, you're supposed to be the Johnny Carson. And that's what I'm doing. I'm Johnny Carson. Johnny Carsoning you right now. Uh, does anybody have anything else on the Marvel book before I shift this over to the DC? Uh, no, I'd never read this before, and I quite enjoyed it. I, I like when we do a book like this, and it makes you. If you haven't read it, it makes you want to read the second issue or the next issue. And I think this one does. Mm. I originally thought the art was Jerry Ordway, just leafing through it. But uh, I do like the, the his Mephisto in this. He's very good. His Reed Richards looks a little bit too much like Peter Parker in mm. the flashback scenes. But no, I enjoyed this. It was, it was very enjoyable. Very good. Cool. All right, Andy, you got our DC, right? Oh, am I next? I thought we were going to do Robert Crumb next. Oh, now you just gave it away. Oh. Nah. <laughs> now we, we go Marvel, DC, then indie. That's, that's All right, the, okay. the routine. There's a format. Yeah. You, yeah. You'd never know by listening. <laughs> a, very, a very loose format. As it is, as it, I, I, as it is, yes. I thought you just made it up as you went along. Shh, don't tell anybody. You mean this doesn't seem scripted to you? <laughs> I've, we've been hitting all our marks so far. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did get the script through the mail, but I got it for yesterday, so I didn't know whether you'd made any changes. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Ten, ten minutes in, Bill does bad singing. Check. <laughs> we, can we have another one of them in about five minutes? Oh, I'm going to have to write something. <laughs> okay. Hey, you're uh, just yeah, lucky I... I haven't started singing. I'm working on a secret singing project, though, for you guys. Shh. Don't worry. Just just for the comment on that, very appropriate use of Ring of Fire. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was an excellent choice. Yes, I know sometimes mine have been a stretch, like the, sing... uh, like the Moon Eater one from the Fantastic Four issue. That was a big stretch. I don't remember what song you did on that. When the was, moon eats your no, no, eyes was, like a big pizza pie, that's Galactus. <laughs> <laughs> there, I did it. I sang. Galactus the musical. That's Galactus. <laughs> Just not a word you want to sing. <laughs> what rhymes with Galactus? He's going to attack us. Does that work? Collapses. He's going to attack us, yes. Yeah. Fight him and have a fracas. He's in a fracas. <laughs> Look out, he'll smack us. Oh, yeah, it's it's tough, yeah. We better pack us. No, that you doesn't work. This oh, yeah. No, I did the one where uh, Jim ben Backus. Was Jim Backus. <laughs> he looks like Jim Backus. <laughs> oh, never mind. Moving on to DC. Moving on to DC, uh, my pick was Nightwing 38 um, from 1999, I think, because I've got the trade paperback, so it doesn't actually have the the cover date on it. I have it as December of 1999. That'll do very nicely, and uh, I just happened to be reading this one, 
So that's why I picked it. It's called Face to Face. It's written by Chuck Dixon. It's penciled by Scott McDaniel and inked by Carl Story. And there's a bunch of other people who did some stuff, but we're not bothered about that. Uh, We open in the midst of No Man's Land as Dick Nightwing Grayson and Barbara Batgirl Gordon do aerial acrobatics. But Dick miscalculates and hits the floor. Fortunately, it's a dream, so he's not dead. And Mr. Grayson is being looked after by Barbara oracle garden after sustaining heavier injuries taking back blackgate prison and adding it to the batman's territory outside though rogue gotham city police department copper petite and his troops are converging on oracle's hq despite the no man's land oracle still has power and facilities and is aiding garden and the blue boys Petite wants that stronghold and Oracle. His forces move in, but Barbara's automated defences take care of some of the troopers. As Grayson and Bab start to rekindle their relationship, Petite's men attack and manage to breach Oracle's security. Nightwing, bandaged and wounded, stands up to them just as former Grayson Flame, the Huntress, arrives as Petite's backup. Wasn't really a lot of stories to this one, was there? No, it really... <laughs> It, it really light on it. <laughs> I didn't realize it's amazing that. how you just crashed to the end there. Yeah, without us expecting, <laughs> it was just over. When, when, I, you, when you I talk about even... like the you know the decompressed comics, <laughs> they really did a number on this one. Now what you I, well, I couldn't was... even keep up with changing the pages. I'm like, what? Wait, what? Where are we? Oh shit, we're done. <laughs> yeah, well, that's pretty much what it is. You just get scene after scene of. Petite men trying to break into Oracle's stronghold and being defeated by automated stuff, and then scenes of Barbara and Dick being all mushy, and then more scenes of them trying to break in. I thought that would have made for a very boring synopsis, so I just trimmed it down. Nice. It's not to say that when reading it, it wasn't great, because Chuck Dixon and Scott McDaniel's Nightwing run is, is excellent. But it's one it's one of those things when, when it's decompressed like this, if you're doing it the way you're doing it in, in a in a trade, it's fine. But when you're doing this on a on a month by month basis and you're paying full price for it and you sit down to read it and you know five minutes after you sat down you're done and you really didn't get much you know too much in the way of story progression, that's it, kind of disappointing. Yeah, I but I don't think that that this does that. Although in synopsisizing it, if that's even a word. Uh, this would have been quite repetitive. I would have just been going, and then Barbara and Dick do this, and then they attack a bit more, and then Barbara and Dick do this. But when you're actually reading it, I thought this was quite a full, a full meal. Dixon's stuff was never slow to read, but it was a fast-paced action comic. That's what he was writing, and it's I kind of cinematic was... more than a piece of literature. You know, it's more like a, yeah, an action. Yeah, I never forgot that he was he was writing for the trade paperback. I never felt disappointed when I was reading Chuck Dixon's Nightwing comics because there was always so many little character bits and stuff going on. And his action scenes are flawless whenever he does a big extended act. I mean, there's some great issues of Nightwing where essentially he is writing an, an 80s TV action adventure TV show, but doing it in comics. And when we've now got an era where it is just people sitting around tables discussing stuff, the fact that Dixon marries the sitting around discussing stuff with explosions is cool. I loved this issue. I thought it was fantastic. All right. (laughs) Uh, You know, I am not wild about the art style. 
It's not the art okay. itself that I have a problem with. It's just, it, it's almost the, the art of the era, like the very, very thick inking lines. Uh, it just, you know, it, it, something about it that was I wasn't crazy about. On the splash page, Dick's face almost looks like the Joker. Well, I suppose if you're doing that kind of a real acrobatic over Gotham City, you're going to look pretty happy about it. <laughs> I guess. But And then when I looked at uh, on page four at the bottom panel, it reminds me of the way Dick looked on the Teen Titans cartoon. Oh, when he's fallen? Yes. Upside down? Yeah. Yes. Mm. It's not, like I said, it's not bad art. I, I, it's not that, that I look at it and dislike it. It's just that it's... Uh, it's not the style that I go for. Do you guys get the feel that maybe it was worked on a computer a little bit? It, I didn't think of that, I mean? but now that you say it, I'm looking at it, and very possibly, this may have been early in in the uh, yeah you know, the, when, when people first started doing the the computerized art. There's almost, and I don't, and it, it, it's not exactly like that, but there's like that almost element of MS Paint, you know, or the the um, I'm trying to remember the the name of the comp. There was a comic by oh who, the guy who did Black Kiss comics that he did completely on a computer way back in the days when he probably shouldn't have done it on a computer. And there's just around the edges, I see elements of that, <laughs> almost like a pixelation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. On some stuff. Yeah, it's it's it. it, it doesn't have that like parts of it don't seem to have that hand-drawn feel there's almost too symmetrical and i don't know it's not again it's not bad at all maybe it no. was inked digitally i don't know i like it i think this kind of clean cartoony art style that doesn't seem to be in fashion much anymore is um is actually deceptively difficult to do you look at it and you think it looks simple but the top um, panel, again, I'm in the trade paperback, so I don't have any page numbers, um, where the police department are hanging on top of the uh, the building overlooking Gotham. And then they come down the stairs and the walls all caved in because of the earthquakes that Gotham suffered from is really detailed. Yes. And all the pages with Dick and Barbara just chatting. Barbara's facial expressions are brilliant. I, I, I'm not crazy about the really big anime-style eyes, though. No, I'm not a big fan of anime eyes, but I love on that page that I think you're looking at, the Barbara's pout. He, he, do, he draws a good pouting woman, and then she gets angry, and then she's, she's confused, and, and then she's upset. And all of that's just conveyed in the artwork, just from the facial expressions. You don't need the dialogue to convey what the character's thinking. And when you compare it to the artist that followed McDaniel on Nightwing, Greg Land, who everyone's faces just look the same, like he's just photocopied them from a newspaper or some or something. I I thought this was lovely. I really like it. But I think Dixon and um, McDaniel's Nightwing runs very underrated. How does uh, how does okay? So the guys that are going in, they're with the Gotham City Police. No, they're with a, a fraction. Of oh, the Gotham oh. City Police. Pa- Petit has split off from Commissioner Gordon at this point because Petit thinks that Gordon's too soft. And Petit's all about just putting a bullet through people's heads in no man's land. That's just the way it is. So they've broke off and have got their own splinter faction. And they want Oracle 
because they know that Oracle is providing all the information to Gordon's crew and also ah. to Batman. And Nightwing's here because he's just been tasked with taking back Blackgate, which he did, but he was quite he was wounded during the process. So Barbara's mm. given him some TLC. The second part of the story, which follows it straight up, is essentially just 22 pages of fighting. And it's fantastic. It's really good. Well, why is the Huntress on the side of uh, this other faction? Because in No Man's Land, if, have you read No Man's Land or has it been a while? Actually, I have never read that. Right. It, it's, no it's something Man's I'll Land. eventually get to. It is really good. I think it's a textbook comic book crossover it may be the best one they've done in no man's land when batman gets back to no man's land at the beginning of the story there's a new batgirl on the scene and he cuts us some slack because there's only him there everyone else has been evacuated and do you want me to ruin a bit of it for you sure go ahead yeah yeah it it's, it's been so it's been whatever 15 years All right, I think it's it turns okay. out that this new batgirl is the huntress and she crosses the line that batman doesn't think she should cross and he banishes her so she teams up with petite because oh. she's of the same opinion that a bullet through the head is the way you solve most of the problems in no man's land but mm. as the story goes on huntress starts to realize that petite's a nut job <laughs> i'm just, I'm just cool. looking at it uh page 19 I think is where I see what you're talking about, Chris, with the, uh, you know, almost like the pixelated look to it a little bit. The close-up of Barbara's face in the middle of the page, which I agree with Andy, it is very expressive, but it kind of seems to be an example of what you were talking about. Maybe it was which, What year was this again? 99? Yeah. 99, okay. So, yeah, that would be in the time period where people were experimenting around with that. I mean, definitely in the coloring and stuff, you can see there's a lot of, you know, the, just the way stuff is shaded, it's probably done with computer type stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is just, that's sort of the law of the land now, but I never well, got used to it. I'm there, is a, there is a credit for a separator. Oh. as well as a colorist. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe this was ran through a computer at some point and scanned in rather than... But certainly, yeah, the color in her eyes have that kind of glassy computer look, don't they? If you look at them closely. So, yeah, maybe this was one of the first computer-something comic books. And, and in, you know, in that regard, I, I think it looks good. Uh, you know, they, they did... Uh... I don't even remember what the, what series they did it in, but they, there was a book at some point that they did much later than this, where it was like purely a computer-generated image on everything, and it almost you know almost had like that Pixar look about it, and I didn't like that on the printed page. Whereas this doesn't have that. This doesn't lose the appeal of a hand-drawn image. Just you know whatever aesthetics you have. Like I said, I, I'm not crazy about the really thick lines, but it you know. You could do the really thick lines or the thin lines with computer or by hand. That's not going to affect it. Mm. And they did that, was it Digital Justice in like the late 80s, early 90s that was all computer generated as well? That was a Batman book, I think. I don't think I ever read it. But I remember there being a big deal about it being all computer. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, that may be what the one I'm thinking of, actually, now that you say it. Yeah, I think we touched on that last episode. I think we talked about Digital Justice. Actually, didn't we, Paul? 
I don't remember. <laughs> I think Scott was bringing uh, up something about a computer comic book. And then, uh, anyway. I know we talked about Mr. Short-Term Memory, and that's me right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, anybody got anything more on this one? Going once? I like the art. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> <laughs> just, just one more art thing to point out on page twenty-one. At, down at the bottom of it, Dick kind of looks like he's like seventy-five. <laughs> <laughs> he's had a bad couple of weeks. He's got oh. that grumpy old man Clint Eastwood look to him. Get off my lawn! Get off my roof! And he's got the Logan hair. <laughs> And I don't mean Logan Gardner. He's got the old man Logan hair. Although two panels up, he looks pretty young and youthful there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Barbara was oh. sucking the life out of him. Although hmm. he says, did, did, did you feel that too? And she says, intruders? <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've got a feel for Dick Grace in this story because it's his worst nightmare. His two ex-girlfriends meet. Oh yeah, well that's good. Yeah, that's not good. No one ever likes that situation. No, that can get ugly. All right, let's go over to the indie with Mister Independence. For better or worse, <laughs> Mister Honeywell. In sickness. <laughs> Till death. <laughs> okay. Sorry, you guys caught me chewing on a pretzel. Well, if you're George Bush, a, you'd be choking on a pretzel. I know. Um, I actually got this comic from my buddy uh, Johnny Bueno, who um, probably heard on the funny book Underbelly. And it's really cool. As he replaces his collection of undergrounds, I get the, the cast-off issues, you know, the ones that have gotten... Um, Although this copy of Big Ass, this what we're looking at is Big Ass Comics number two. I do have Big Ass Comics number one, but I kind of like Big Ass Comics number two a little better. And since we're doing Big Ass Comics, I figure number two is more appropriate. So, okay, so we got Big Ass Comics number two. came out in August 1971 by Ripoff Press. Um... Basically, Robert Crumb is the original Sir Mix-a-Lot. In uh, Big Ass Number 2, we get pretty much exactly what the cover promises. Stories involving women with extremely big asses, punctuated here and there by rants by the artist. Um, it actually it starts out um, with Part 2 of uh, Egg's Ackley Adventure, Egg's Escapes, in which Egg's... Um, escapes from the gigantic Amazon vulture demonesses by first tying them into a massive big butt knot and then inserting the queen vulture's head into her own rectum and therefore um, becoming king of the vulture women. Um, there's a bizarre tribute to a girl who likes to hang from her windowsill by her teeth and a strip where Crumb basically tries to justify his uh, comics um, to feminists, and by the end of it, he just basically tells him to fuck off. Um, then we get a lovely story called Anal Antics, 
where we join the ever-popular Mr. Snoyd in an early version of Celebrity Cribs, except his crib is a young lady's buttocks. Hilarity ensues. And uh, the final (laughs) story involves young Sally Blubberbutt trouncing a couple of diminutive perverts who literally uh, park their car on her posterior. Uh, This is some seminal crumb, completely politically incorrect, completely lacking in any redeeming social value, and completely entertaining. I would urge it's lacking in... a certain type of person. (laughs) Yeah, I would... I'd argue it's lacking in social value. I think the art's brilliant. The art is brilliant, but I'll tell you what. Our crumb would be the first person to tell you that that if you're trying to get anything deep out of this comic, um, you, you're really sort of barking up the wrong tree. I thought this was funny. I don't know what that says about oh, me. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it, but... Um, you know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pretend that this isn't. These aren't drawings that R. Crumb wrote to uh, whack off to, because <laughs> that's what they are. He gets off drawing this stuff, and he would draw these as yeah, his own for his own amusement, let's say. And if anybody else happens to enjoy them, then they enjoy them. But he's not trying to say much of anything except. That he likes big butts and he cannot lie. <laughs> All the other cartoonists try to deny. And yeah, and it really like it's it's funny because I grew up with our crumb comics because uh, my parents subscribed to this magazine called um, the Coevolution Quarterly, and there was always an our crumb comic in there, and a lot of them were like this, a lot of uh, um, of this sort of thing. And he did do some that were sort of, you know, social commentary and, you know, straight up humorous stuff, humorous gags and uh, but other autobiographical stuff. And uh, it 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 seems that one formative part of his childhood, like one of his mother's friends gave him a ride on her leg (laughs) where she bounced him up and down with wearing leather boots and that so fi- so basically almost everything is based off <laughs> off his perception of her legs and butts and and yeah <laughs> um i mean i think when you look at a book like this you got to start off with put it in perspective of who the intended audience was people who are really wasted yeah, yeah this 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 wasn't a book that was available on newsstands this wasn't a book that you know young very young kids were going to be reading at all i mean you start with the cover price of 75 cents this is a time when books cost 15 cents or 20 mm-hmm. cents so a cover price of 75 cents was extremely was like high that would be like 10 bucks today or something like that yeah well, yeah i mean it wouldn't it, i don't know if it would be 10 bucks by normal uh you know, inflation, but when you look at comic book inflation, it would definitely be at least 10 bucks now. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. when you think about it, like a 100-page issue back then, I think, was 35 cents. Yeah. So, and this is, you know, 75 cents. This is more than double that. Well, and also, also this has zero advertising mm-hmm. in it. <laughs> you know, there's no way that they're really going to get advertising for it. As a matter of fact, 
they were barely able to publish these things. You know, they were, mm-hmm. you, they had to, they had to, and when you, and like, if you're a serious collector of these comics, the, the, there's been so many different printings of them and there were different printings at different printing presses because they would print them one place and then they'd be like, I'm not putting this stuff out. And so they'd have to finish off the run someplace else. And it probably got more and more, they probably had to pay more and more just to get them printed in the first place. So okay. yeah, like um, like I was saying before the show, this one has a uh, has a stamp on the inside that says Truckers General Store in San Antonio, Texas. But big ass number one has a stamp in it that's like, you know, Frank's Frank's um, Waterbed Discount Store um, and and Head Supplies, you know. <laughs> so I, mean, a- I would think the initial print run on on a book like this was probably really small. Really small, yeah, and but there were just a lot of them. They would, they would print a really small print, sell them all. You know, he would, he would, in the early days. By this time, he was pretty big, but it, when he first started, he would like print off a bunch of comics, and he and his wife would walk up and down San Francisco with a baby carriage full of comics, and be just like, "Hey, do you want to buy my comic book?" And so they would print them off till they were gone, and then they would print off another run. That's why it's so hard to tell, the you know which one of these is an original print and a lot oh, of oh yeah like first printing get second printed printing right up to today, like I could probably go to my local comic shop and go back in the underground section, and pick up a, a you know a three or four, it would probably be four ninety nine, five ninety nine copy of Big Ass Comics number two. That hmm. that looks exactly like this one. Except the pages would be white, <laughs> and the price would say you know three ninety nine or four ninety nine or whatever. They just keep they just keep printing them and printing them and printing them, you know, forever. So so one way to kind of tell is based on what the what the cover price is. The cover but- price. Sometimes the colors. Sometimes they would be different colors from the different printers. Sometimes one printer would be really crappy, so you could tell from there. Uh, yeah i mean yeah it's a it's a it's a true science especially with some of the old r crumb stuff because that's the stuff that's really that's when you start getting into the you know real valuable action number one style comics to that i don't think r crumbs comics are the most valuable undergrounds i think there were some other ones but you know yeah and 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 those ones you know sometimes there were probably runs of like 500 printings you know at one time of certain ones and remember these were getting sold to hippies so these were not being put into uh, boxed and bagged and boarded and taken care of they were sitting on some hippies you know living room if you could call it crash pad hot with bong water getting spilled on them and (laughs) you know people pawing through them and stuff like that so you know, for them to make it, it into this time is is almost a minor miracle. I think I think the artwork in this book is like deceptively good. Like you look at it, it looks you know it has that simple crumb look to it, and you think it's just very cartoony. But then when you look at it, you know the perspective on it and all the the cross hatching and everything, it's it's really well done. I uh, he's he is so into butts. That when <laughs> if you pay attention to the butts in this 
comic, which if you're reading the comic, you can't help but pay attention to the butts. It's all about the butts. You can feel those those goddamn things. You can see what they they have. You know, they take up space and they have, um, you know, different. It's he, yeah. He he's really a, has a good sense of of making things look tactile and three dimensional, cartoony. And and if you take all the cross hatching and stuff away, what you would have would be like a really like Saturday after Saturday or Sunday morning cartoon looking thing. But once he starts cross hatching and and putting the light in and the shadow and and stuff like that, it takes on that extra extra dimension. I, a lot of this reminds me of like <clears throat> the twenties and the thirties style <clears throat> illustration of stuff. Only he's, you know, coming at it from a crazed 60s perspective. And it's funny because he's, in a lot of ways, I was watching actually uh, the Pink Floyd movie, Pompeii, today. And thinking this, the Pink Floyd were this was this huge band. All the hippies loved him and they were like, let's take acid and go see Pink Floyd. Pink Floyd didn't really do drugs. R. Crumb got his hands on some drugs when he was in San Francisco because people were giving them to him, but he wasn't really into it, you know. He was kind of a nerd and kind of a square in this whole hippie scene. And it's just funny that he's become sort of this iconic representation of that scene. And he was he was a dork, you know, compared to, you know, he was having trouble getting the girl. When he became a famous cop um, cartoonist, he could get the girls and stuff, but... It's it's just really funny that a lot of times, like a lot of the hippies, hippie culture, came from people who are not necessarily like the the hippies. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I mean, when when I think of Crumb, it's like we were talking about before before the show. I think of Keep on Trucking, and I mm-hmm. think of Fritz the Cat. That's that's the two things that come to mind for me. And both things, if you ever ran into Robert Crumb and were like, "Hey, keep on trucking, Fritz the Cat," he'd be like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he's bitter about both." Keep on trucking got ripped off and put on bumper stickers and cars, and he didn't get any money from that, so he's mad about that. And Fritz the Cat, he didn't like the movie adaptation of that at all, so he killed Fritz the Cat like right after the movie came out. He drew a cart strip where Fritz the Cat got wiped out, so he out of spite. But um, yeah, he's he's a, he's bitter. He's he's moved right out. Of, he's moved right out of America. He lives in France now, so he's a he's gone to the ultimate like bitter expatriate country, the land of Jerry Lewis. Exactly. <laughs> but he's Lady. also a very talented old timey <laughs> musician. Plays banjo and has an old. Old timey band that's really good. Our crumbs, cheap suit serenaders. See, the, the funny thing is, he he was you know obviously he was underground, but and the thing that probably upsets him about the whole keep on trucking thing is it became mainstream mm-hmm. without people probably having any idea of what message he was trying to send. But I mean, I remember you know at this point, 1971, I would have been eight years old. And I remember, like, with Keep On Trucking and everything, you know, kids my age walking around with T-shirts with that on it, they had no clue what it, you know. No idea, yeah. So that that's I probably the thing that upset him, kid, is that... Man, like, 
it, it meant like you know the sea beers, you know, trucking, you know, and they're in with a with a twelve wheeler, you know, mm-hmm. or what a eighteen wheeler, fourteen wheelers, eighteen whatever, eighteen wheelers, yeah. Oh my god, did I say twelve wheelers? Okay, <laughs> yeah. Just keep bad okay. feels till we get it right. Big, big old wheeler. convoy rocking through the night. Yeah. Oh boy! Let them truckers roll ten four. You got that's, your that's your cue, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> we got a great big convoy coming on to the night. Okay, all right, enough of that. One of maybe one of the worst songs ever. <laughs> <laughs> I love that song. I loved any song with a story like that as a kid. But yeah, oh, terrible. There's a million bad trucker songs out there. Yeah, there's the. Isn't there the teddy bear song? Song that's one of the worst. I don't <laughs> think I know that one. Oh, oh yeah, you, oh. you just you just blocked it out of your memory. It's that's one of those sad. It's a sad story one. It's I it's, think it doesn't it end with a dead. It's a dead kid story basically. I thought yeah. you said it was a trucker song. It yeah, is, but it's but a trucker it's a, song that ends with a dead kid. It's a tearjerker. Oh yeah. Ah, terrible. Yeah, I mean, there were plenty of tearjerker songs back then. Honey. <laughs> well, what was the, the uh, what the heck is the Seasons in the Sun? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. At least that's a sad song and it's tearjerky song. The ones where somebody has to stop and talk and tell you. Well, that that's what all those trucker ones were. It was just a spoken story. So it's just like, you know. You know, little Billy's dying of leukemia, and his father's out on the road. And, and, and yeah, for 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 that trend, the comic book readers got a razor back, and he was driving Big Pig <laughs> in, in, in the Spider-Man comics. <laughs> oh, Razorback! Yeah, you remember? I think that was in Spectacular uh, Spider-Man. Yes. Yeah, it was in Spectacular. It was with the whole um, army of Lords of Light story yes. and. Um, yeah, yeah Shoshan and her husband. Yeah, Shoshan, yeah. I really don't, unless unless I'm wrong, but I'm really surprised that there wasn't, during the 70s, a, a Marvel trucker comic, trucker what? superhero comic. Wasn't well, there like was US-1 or something like yeah, that? Yeah, but that was oh, more in the right. 80s. That was in the 80s, though. Wasn't it early 80s? Late. Yes. Yeah, that was way too late. <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. just gonna Marvel jumping on the bandwagon ten years too late. Yeah. <laughs> God, that's right. It was terrible. Like, that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head. And and I I'm thinking Razorback wasn't necessarily right on the cutting edge of it, but I know CBs were big at the time when that came out. Right. The comic should have come out right about the same time that BJ and the Bear was on TV. Oh yeah. Rolling down to tennis, my wheels provide my palace. What? Yeah. What a what a <laughs> off the New Orleans. Who knows where? That's the greatest life ever. A trucker on the move with your monkey. That was yeah. where they were like, we got to take the trucker movies, the Dukes of Hazard, in every which way but loose, and rip it all off for a TV show. I'm B.J. McKay and my best friend Bear. And now this best friend bear will freak out and rip somebody's face off. <laughs> I grab Egan and went on to be one of my two dads. What a career. He probably went on for medical experiments by now is the sad <laughs> truth of what happened. 
bear probably. <laughs> yeah, bear. Poor bear. That's he, usually the fate of yeah. And he was so good monkey brains in Temple of Doom, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and, ah, that's right. He was in Temple of Doom. <laughs> Greg Evigan. No, Bear. He was the monkey brains. Oh. That was his final role. And then... Uh, <laughs> Posthumous Oscar. <laughs> BJ, McK- <laughs> BJ McKay was... He wasn't he on... Wasn't he in Deep Star 6? Yes. That was like, that was like in the early 90s, late 80s. He was in Tech War as well. Uh, oh, yeah. oh, yes. Yes, that's right. Did we become oh. a Greg Evigan podcast? <laughs> you know what? It, we'd probably be the only one on t- on uh, on iTunes. Well, there's nothing wrong with filling a niche. <laughs> a niche within a niche. No matter how small. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that's a pretty like small this. group. I, I enjoyed this, Chris. I don't know what that says about me. It reminded me of Viz. You ever read Viz? Oh, oh God. Not, not in a long time, but uh, I've... Yeah, I have read Viz. Viz seemed very heavily influenced by this. Oh yeah, oh I'm sure. I'm sure. I Viz, you know, I, I mean it just had since it was British, it had just a a whole other vibe to it. Cuz Viz had that just sort of Oh, it reminds me a little bit of Hustler, you know. Yeah. It was easy. It had some. It had the the British humor and just a great l- layer of d- dirty sleaze. Every character was a, in it was just sleazy, and I believe Walt Hadley, who Scott and I got our first comics from, I think he had a huge stack of Viz comics, and I wish when I was younger I would have appreciated a lot of stuff like that because i could have probably ended up he probably would have been thrilled to have sold me stacks <laughs> of those things <laughs> and 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 i'll bet you viz had uh, i i think viz was happening i think viz was wasn't that happening since like the 50s it was kind of an underground passed around comic cons thing and then in the 80s the mid 80s it started being sold on news agent shelves as being not suitable for children, so of course we passed it around the school playground. Because there could have been there could have been actually a lot of cross pollination on that. There could have that could have actually made its way here before some of this stuff came out, you know, and and had an effect on it too. Yeah. At least with su- subject matter. And the art, the art's very. Viz ripped a lot off this from the artwork. Yep, it was. I got, I... Uh, Go on, sorry. It was just. It was just the. It was when comics realized that they could be smut. <laughs> yeah, and it would sell. The guy who created Viz is a multimillionaire. Well, so I don't know well. how there would ever be. It's. It's not that there that that there would ever be a question that it would sell. It's just like, but at that time period, actually selling it was a legal was a legal quandary. You know, you could get in a lot of trouble, and it wasn't just you know. I mean, I, the people these days just really don't have to uh, unless they're printing something horrifying, and even so, Fifty Shades of Grey. They can still get away with it, sell it, and be on the New York Times bestseller list, you know, instead of 
I mean, there used to be people getting arrested for mailing William S. Burroughs' naked lunch from one state to another during, you know, when this was all going on. So you were sort of putting it on the line to to put stuff out. I don't think the artists actually were the ones who would get were getting arrested, but like if you were Frank's Frank's um, waterbed world, you could end up, you know, in in jail over decency laws for stuff like this. Yeah, not anymore. No, not now. It's just you know, it's. I mean, smut is. Smut is as close to you as your laptop or personal <laughs> device. <laughs> I love that the internet is starting to disgorge all these pictures of people like on the train watching porn and stuff. That just cracks me up. That there would be somebody like on the train ride, on the 20 minute train ride home who could not wait. <laughs> Gotta have to that pop. porn. Yeah. All right, I think we got a show, guys. <laughs> Is that how you're going to go out? Got to have that porn? <laughs> no, well, I, I think was... we should go out with PJ and the bear. I'm I'm working on it. They don't make opening credits like that anymore, do they? <laughs> you got it, Bill? Uh... I'm working on it. I'm working on it. All right, hey, gonna... where are you going? Not exactly knowing who says you have to call in one place home. He's going everywhere. He's BJ McKay and his best friend Bear. Who needs the real thing when you got Andy doing it? (laughs) That's just. (laughs) Is your wife laying in bed right now going, like, what the hell? What? Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com slash league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.